Hello, and welcome back to the Community Agriculture Project podcast. I'm your host, Emily, and this is Season 2, Episode 3 of the Community Agriculture Project podcast. And if you haven't heard already, the Community Agriculture Project is a resource hub and a documentation project that gets insight into local agriculture systems and food sovereignty-based initiatives. So today we have a very special guest and we're going to get into all things food and people related. Um, I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves and we'll go from there. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Anthony Baz Rodriguez. I'm a photographer, filmmaker, ethnobotanist, and a lover of the natural world. Yeah, Anthony and I, I guess, to give the background, we met through William Padilla Brown, who might be referenced in a later part of this podcast. William Padilla Brown is an incredible person, citizen scientist, uh, mycologist, biologist. He's a man of magic. So uh, we met at his festival, Michael Fest, and we already kind of knew that we had some common interests. Um, but yeah, so tell the people, I guess give the people a little bit of background on what is the word ethnobotany? Because people might not be familiar with that. Well, <clears throat> ethnobotany is the studies of the relationship that humans have with plants. So ethno meaning people, botany meaning plants. So it's basically the scientific exploration and study people have plants and so what has that journey kind of looked like for you in what ways have you been an ethnobotanist because there's a lot of you know ways to get to one goal so what does that look like for you um it looks i mean it has many i approach it in many different ways but Expedition work is pretty much my forte. I like going to foreign places and learning about the natural flora, the native flora that people use to make their lives better. Uh, the, the plants that they use in rituals, the plants that they use to build their homes, to make their clothes, their medicines, pretty much anything that feeds their lifestyle. Yeah, like this whole human experience, which I really appreciate from a sovereignty lens because just living, like, we're both based around the New York City metro area right now, and it's just a very different experience, you know? And so to be in tune with the way that people can really build their lives based on what's around them, I think is really important. And great, I love, I love the expedition. Yeah, <laughs> the expedition approach. Yes, it sounds very serious. It can be. I have a lot more <laughs> that I need to get done. Yeah, uh, currently in New York City right now. So until I leave this place. So let's talk about some of these expeditions. I guess we can get into that. Sure. Um, I'm sure there have been a lot. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot, um, and there's a lot more to get done. Um, trying to, my next places I'm trying to hit is Africa, um, I want to hit the east coast of Africa to explore more uh, banana work, so I don't know if you're interested, if you're, for those listening, if you don't know about my work, um, a big project that I've been working on since 2015, well it was conceptualized in 2015, is my Bananas of the World project, where I dive into the history and cultural uses of uh, bananas. So I spent a, a, a good portion of my time traveling the world, documenting uh, wild bananas and banana cultivars and banana cultures. Yeah, for for some serious projects that I can't wait to get onto the world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. When I started following Anthony's work, I was just like, "You're telling me that this is a banana?" <laughs> I was just really shocked by some of the things that I've seen, and like, I'm. Just naturally a very curious person, and being able to see things like this made me just even more curious about what what does 
this look like and I guess the stories that you tell around it are really interesting so um, for a specific example of that I guess what what was your first expedition that you ever went on ever <laughs> mm, that was in the Amazon forest of uh, Iquitos, Peru, mm -hmm. where I was actually uh, filming some, filming and making photos for a fellow colleague of mine, and um, at the time, and we were documenting some some rare fruits in the Amazon jungle. Yeah, that was my first ex expedition. I got terribly ill. Oh no! Yeah, I think I got cholera like in the first week of being in Peru from, from some bad water. Um, yeah, it was exciting. Though. So you were just looking for fruits in general or something specific? Fruits, like? medicines, uh, pretty much we just, we're just learning about the, the flora when we were adopting. And did you get into contact with people there? Yeah, we, we, we met some, some local guides who actually took us into deep jungles. Uh, we got on boats and went into various tributaries uh, on the, the Amazon River, mm. saw pink dolphins. Whoa! Uh, yeah. Um, some weird, some weird fruits. Pink dolphins in the Amazon? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I forgot what the, what the hell. Not in the river, in the river. In the river, yeah. In the river? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're pink. And they have very tiny eyes because they can't see through the murky water. Yeah. River Into dolphins it. is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They're, they're color, they're the same color as bubblegum. That's incredible. Yeah. So, did this expedition, I guess, like, that experience for you, how did it form further the work that you do, or how did it influence your, your path? I think it just kind of opened my eyes into what's out there, you know, going into the field is very different than looking at a book, or looking on uh, the screen, you know, because you're, you're reading about these rare plants from all over the world, but to be able to, like, go out and, like, track them down and see them in person see the locals re inter interact with these things it just gives you a very different uh, perspective you know and to be able to taste it you know that's very important well. taste these things smell these things touch these things so what's one example of like a human and a plant or a fruit like history that that was uncovered there in the amazon mm -hmm. um, like on that first expedition I mean, cacao, cacao was a very big, you know, there was some wild species of cacao. Um, I think that's one of the main fruits that kind of fed a civilization, you know. Um, it still feeds civilizations. It's still, you know, it's a big industry. Even though a lot of it's not grown in the Amazon. Well, I mean, they still grow in the Amazon. A lot of it's grown abroad, you know, now they have crazy, you know, cacao cultivations, you know, happening in uh, Africa. So learning about that was really interesting, and then the various species, uh, theobroma, cacao, uh, theobroma, bicolor, you know, the, the really big, you know, uh, yellow one. Mm -hmm. It's like the size I've of a melon. I've seen that one. Yeah. It's like the size of a melon. Those are weird, you know. Just learning about the diversity, and I haven't even really dived into cacao diversity, but that's just definitely something that I'm interested in. And yeah. I think it's like... Yeah, it's so important to understand like the human relation to these foods because I don't know, it's just taken for granted so much. It's like, okay, I'm gonna go get my cacao powder, you know, I'm gonna get this chocolate bar. But there's just a whole history behind that and I think aside from understanding the industry, you know, and all that's developed around it, like actually understanding the way that indigenous people have engage with that or honor that as a fruit and a food that has brought like so much abundance in so many ways is yeah just a completely different lens um to look at it through yeah for sure i think the one of the more shocking things that i feel like i've experienced on many of my trips is the amount of degradation and destruction that's happening the loss of these you know foods and a lot of the younger generation uh, straying away from like what their elders have done since time immemorial because they're moving to cities and so that right now there's pretty much a a, a 
loss, a, a, a big loss happening right now, you know, um, with the, the food. So the foods and the, and the indi- indigenous knowledge. You know, so I think it's important to document and explore these things to kind of rekindle, you know, the interest, especially for people who are underground to appreciate their own history and their own like traditional knowledge. Yeah. And to do it, you know, with exactly that intent, you know, to to keep the knowledge alive but not necessarily to exploit it, you know, yeah. for whatever personal interest you <laughs> or whoever might have. I think it's, it's just a sensitive line because people get so excited about something now I'm really excited about this and I did my research and now I can use this however I want like it doesn't really work that way yeah I feel like or I would hope it doesn't um but yeah and also I feel like I've talked to a lot of people about just even with farming and gardening like how powerful it is to start forming a relationship with like your basil your your microgreens on your counter your Tomatoes. If you're only growing one thing in your garden and you have tomatoes, I know that y'all grew some powerhouse of tomatoes this year. Chicken manure. Oh, that's what you use? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Heavy nitrogen. Yeah. But just having a relationship and just like kind of sitting with that food and that fruit and getting to know it because there's just so much to know about it. Yeah. You know? So much, so much diversity, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think people really understand how immense food diversity really is you know like yeah we know what tomatoes are we get buying tomatoes in the store but there are thousands of varieties of tomatoes and there's probably even more that have been lost you know because of people not growing them and passing this you know passing the seeds down and, and there's constantly being new ones formed because you know you have people who are obsessed with tomatoes for example and they're crossing and creating new varieties and testing out some are good for pasta sauce some are good for you know slicing tomatoes you know so it's we can take that same approach to pretty much anything in the food world food plant food world you know yeah it's interesting I have a friend that works for Johnny Selected Seeds and they yeah they work they really work on the ground with some of that kind of process and developing, you know, the different phenotypes or choosing the different phenotypes rather. Um, so it's really interesting, but also what you said about some of the species being lost. So what is it or how much of a focus do you have in your expedition work in seed saving? Or just like, well, you can't really bring seeds around most of the time when you travel, but um, or like even the the communities that you end up connecting with, or the people that you end up connecting with, like what is it? They are most definitely aware of like the ecosystem destruction and the shifts in their some in are their some are. Um, we'll go back to the Amazon for example. I think a lot of the the. the the forests have been degraded, cut down for agriculture. And, you know, like people are growing crops that are like cash crops because they're trying to make a living. So they will chop down a forest to grow bananas, to grow cassava, to grow sweet potato. Um, you know, depending on where you are in the world, uh, you'll see more seed setting than others. You know, um, there are places like in tropical places, you don't see too much seed saving because. You know, a lot of these things are either receiving themselves or it's too hot to save seed. Mm-hmm. And then you go to places where it's really dry and then you'll find, you know, people saving seeds or seasons. Things like that, you know. Interesting. And so, even away from seeds and just like the environment that people utilize to live because it's just cra- it's just so crazy because... We used to, as humans, just have such a better connection with our environment. Sure. And so, what does it look like for people 
when you do connect with people that have historically had this sovereignty and have access to the land and been able to live in relation to the land and those shifts that are happening environmentally like what does what has that looked like in different situations Hmm. um well i think people the people who are more connected to the land are the ones who are more dependent on it like Mm -hmm. we are here in new york city so we we have whole foods we have supermarkets we have corner stores bodegas and we go and we get our food we get our meats and our nuts and our drinks but there are places where they're completely dependent on their environment the you know they're they're depending on the rainfall they're dependent on the sunshine they're depending on you know pests not overtaking um flooding you know um pollinators you know these things affect how people live in certain places who are more tied into these you know systems and we're kind of like i don't know what the word is but we're we're kind of on the outside you know we're we're, we're we're, we're connected to it but that's really what people don't get it's like yeah we are also dependent on these systems still thriving and being alive because the minute that they start to get exploited for grunt like for whatever monocrop that we're interested in or whatever crop that we're interested in that starts the degradation process of the land and it's just not necessarily sustainable in in a lot of the ways that it's done and yeah so we're not gonna have shit at our whole foods if we really go and exploit all the land we're definitely we're definitely getting to that point where we're 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 destabilizing a lot of um natural order yeah you know so, alright, so the Amazon was your first expedition. That was my first, like, serious expedition where I was doing photography work and video work for someone. Mm-hmm. I went on the expedition. Because um, I'm a photographer, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an artist, so yeah. it kind of, like, merges into my love for botany. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what did the transition look like for you, like, being, I guess on another project to forming your own kind of series where you're going out and well I think I've been, I've, for a while I've been like for example for the banana work uh, for, for a long time I've been you know conceptualizing thinking about bananas and I think the first real serious expeditions I did for that particular project was in the beginning of 2019 where I went to multiple countries trying to track, track down the wild species to, to first focus on I'm working on a book uh, for photos and I started to focus on documenting the wild species and some cultivars um, to kind of give people a peek into a world of uh, unknown things you know because there, there's so much diversity and um, Obviously, I'm choosing bananas because it's like something that we all know. Yeah. We're, we're all very familiar with. We put them in our smoothies. We, they're in our we're fruit bowls. With the Cavendish. Yes, the Cavendish. It's not bad. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't hate it. But I know a lot of people that hate it. I mean, it gets boring. Yeah. It gets boring when you know what's what's out there. For me, at least, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, the, the diversity of the like banana cultivars is, is next level. But, you know, that's what sells, that's what produces, you know, that's what's resistant. For now. Yeah. <laughs> For the market. Yeah. So, how did you approach, I guess, that expedition when you started to form this whole banana world? Well, it started off with just me looking to botanical literature and going to these places, uh, getting on the ground and trying to get to these locations, going to the bush to, you know, find these things. A lot of these things are actually really hard to find because the, the land has either been degraded uh, because of agriculture, you know, and yeah, so pretty much I just wanted to photograph what I was able to. And most of the time I was unable to find some things because of, you know, destruction and then 
there's some things that I found that are just out of this world um, that I'm really looking forward to sharing with people. And so what what was like the people's connection with the banana? I mean, well, in terms of wild species, people were just kind of, they, they found it to be uh, funny that I was even interested in bananas. They're like, this man came from yeah, where? Yeah. <laughs> he came all the way to my country to just take a picture of a, a fruit in the jungle. You know, that's like what monkeys eat. You know? Yeah. They, they see it as like, you know, they chop them down. They, they see them as just like invasive in a way, you know? Because mm. you don't eat them. The wild ones at least. Yeah. They'd rather chop them down and plant something that they can eat. Like what? Like cassava. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, sweet potato something more like substantial Hmm. did you talk to anybody that was like that really held the banana in such high regard um like where um, was that and what did that look like i guess it would be friends of mine that i met abroad yeah but no i haven't found many people who you know maybe in india you know because they used them in temples you know, mm-hmm. they, they chop down the, the stalks and they put them in temples. So they're considered sacred. Huh. That's cool. But I haven't met other banana enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. But I do know some. There's also a lot of uh, cultures that have, or cuisines, cultures and cuisines that utilize the banana flower. Oh yeah, for sure. That's like one of the bigger... I feel like that's more of like a... Asian? Yeah, South Asian, Indian, you know, they do it in, in the Caribbean, mm. South America. Pretty much all over where you get, you know, people know how to use the lies of flowers. They're pretty good. Okay. So, I guess when I think about sovereignty, like, I think about, I think about food sovereignty. There's also other types of sovereignty, like, you know, having a place to live in that you don't gotta pay rent for or <laughs> you don't have to pay somebody else for and right in terms of like people that you connected with really how they like different ways that they were able to like form and build housing well i mean depending on the country you know there are places where you go and people don't pay rent they don't pay land tax because that's been their ancestral land for like like in South Pacific, you know, you go to places where people, their great, 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 great grandfather has been on the land forever. So they're, they're kind of have like a, a, a right to that land, mm-hmm. you know, so people have homes, you know, people have access to water, you know, access to the, the lumber, they're able to cut the trees to build their homes, they're able mm-hmm. to, you know, cultivate the land. Um, you know, there aren't many places where I've been where, you know, people don't have access to them. Mm. America. <laughs> yeah. It's big here. Yeah. Land is very expensive in the West. Yeah. Some places, you know, people are born with the land. There are, place, there are places where people have been being displaced as well. So. Right. Yeah, that's a continuous story. It's like, yeah, there's so, there's so much trouble getting land because first of all who wants the land and the land is stolen to begin with so it's crazy but I remember seeing photos that you shared of like houses being built with maybe like some type of leaf or something mm, or bamboo maybe or bamboo yeah well thatch thatch is a big thing thatch. you know yeah. yeah palm leaves bamboo mm. That, that kind of dives into like the ethnobotanical side of things, how people can use the, the plants to build their homes, you know. Because um, if, you, if you destroy your environment, people are unable to have shelter. They, you know, they, they depend on these things, so. Yeah. Yeah, like, destroying the environment for food for only a specific group of people and then removing the ability for other people to live yeah super wild displacing people you know that's what's happening you know big industry they come in they buy out the land they, they have lumber people especially like tropical hardwoods you know there's a high demand for like certain wood so people in china they you know they build these crazy like furniture pieces you know 
you know, chop down like you know a thousand year old tree and make chopping blocks and seats and, you know, cabinets. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. I think the first time I started seeing that was when I saw the redwoods, and then just kind of see how people, what people have done with that. Yeah. Just like been, yeah, yeah, those things. So you can see some. You ever, watch, you ever seen some of those photos from like the early or late 1800s, early 1900s, and chopping down those first wet redwoods? Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. It was like a frenzy, you know, going in there and just chopping down. You know, when the settlers got here, they just saw all this lumber and resources, so they just wanted to exploit it. Yeah. And we kind of live in with that same mentality, you know, to just extract. And, not really think about like the next eight generations mm-hmm. yeah that, and that is I guess the most classic definition of sustainability that you'll hear because sustainability it has become a buzzword but really it's being able to do something or have resources for the next future generations yeah to think about how other people's sovereignty can be compromised by our um, extractive. When I say our, I mean like the people in the West that are largely creating climate change um, around the world. But yeah, it's, it's wild to think that we can just be compromising other people's ability to live the way that they've been living for so long. Yeah. There's so many things contributing to that. Yeah. So it seems like what it sounds like is that your ethnobody journey, like it's it's an umbrella for a lot of other things that you've realized. Yeah. I, I my ethnobody, I, I feel like I'm more than anything a storyteller. So I want to tell the stories of these plants. I want to tell the stories of these people. Uh, to give people more insight to a world that they probably overlook, you know, because we probably don't think much about where our food comes from. So I, I want to tap into the minds of people to kind of, you know, give them a window into the possibilities and the true diversity of the world uh, when it comes to food plants. So I want to tell the stories because, you know, plants can't speak, so I kind of want to speak for them. They definitely speak in their own way. Yeah, yeah, They for speak sure. in their own way. And, yeah, really, like, what I was speaking about earlier in this episode of just spending time, like, when you spend time with one crop or, like, one plant in your garden, it will really speak to you. Yeah. Like, I could sit there every morning. Well, that is, like, the ritual that I have or, like, the routine that I have is, like, I go out, spend, I'm really present with the plant try to listen to what it's saying to me what are you needing you know how are you looking how are you smelling what's going on with you what are you trying to how are you trying to talk to me obviously they're not going to speak the same way that i speak of course so like getting getting to know it which yeah i think is a really important step yeah 100 <laughs> percent so I know there's going to be a lot coming out uh, of just like your work and the storytelling elements of it, Um, but maybe we could go a little bit rapid fire and you can share like just stories of the other food crops or I don't know, is crop the right word? Some crops, food plants. Food plants? Yeah. Some of the food plants that you have like worked with or studied in whatever environment and yeah just like give a little bit of insight into it hmm. i mean uh <clears throat> I, a lot of them a lot of the plants that i have photographed and studied are not your typical commercial uh, uh, food plants they're more obscure they're more rare they're more unknown so I was, I've been very interested in the unknown, the lesser known, 
example of a lesser known food that most people don't know about. Let's go with sorghum. I was in the grocery store earlier, you know, I saw a lot of things with sorghum in it. Yeah. Um, what's been your experience? It's becoming more popular, you know, uh, just like quinoa uh, has become popular. I mean, at one point, quinoa was only eaten by the poor people of Bolivia. Mm. You know, these ancient grains. Um, I, I feel like, I even uh, believe at one point there was uh, a point where I think the indigenous folks were abandoning their 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 quinoa fields to go into the the cities to work and it wasn't until um, you know it became popular in the west where there was like a resurgence re-emergence of uh, you know people farming quinoa and keeping up their traditions so the I think the more that we know about the the foods of the world the more we can kind of support the world Mm -hmm. you know by you know expanding our palate and it's also yeah like really supporting the people that that have this tie to it and that have been working with the plant and know how to speak to it 100% um because yeah there's there's this group in the city that's called FIG the food interest group and it's people that are working in the food system or and also people that work in the restaurant industry and they kind of just like have round tables and talk about the um just a lot of ethics in, in the food world and what can this group of people do more to yeah be aware of certain things and take action in better ways so shout out to Fig um, and also I attended one of their little meetings where people came from Oaxaca, Mexico representing Dos Pasiones Mezcal and they were they have been working with all different types of agave to make mezcal, but they're working with like way much more diversity in agave. Oh yeah. For all these generations, and most of the mezcal is made from one specific type of agave. Do you know which one? Uh, I can't remember the specific species, but it's the same as tequila. Yeah. The big blue one. Yeah, the big yeah. blue one. But there's tons of wild species that, you know. Yeah, there's so many. And pretty much when we get to the point of like, okay, there's a high demand for mezcal or tequila or both, um, there's the that demand ends up shifting the way that things are grown because whoever does have access to land can just decide that they're going to start monocropping whatever is the food plant that's going to um when it's processed give you that thing that's desired so these people were coming from mexico to just talk about all the other species of agave that they work with and the way that they process it and how that works and the craziest part was of what they were saying they their mezcal can hardly break into the markets here and that's just like our value system probably a good idea it doesn't because even like a lot of those like you know uh artisanal mezcals they're they're made of wild species and some of these species take you know 30 40 years to become mature enough to even produce you know the mezcal that we're looking for i think that it's like i feel both ways because it's just like it's the true cost right like we people in the west need to understand the true cost um associated with what they're buying at the store and yeah getting educated about the plants i think it's such an important first step because it's like yeah it's it's crazy and and kind of heartbreaking that they're really high quality stuff can have such trouble getting into the market here because that's just not in the values of the people to like value such a high quality product that is actually being respectful of the plant and the land because those people have are native to that land they've been working with the land respectfully and sustainably for many generations so that blows me but um It's also crazy that the people in what area did you say the quinoa was in? Bolivia. In Bolivia, mm-hmm. like the people in Bolivia can leave the quinoa fields to to go work in the city, but if we had just and then quinoa blows up in the West, you know. So then who's gonna start growing quinoa? Is that are, is it gonna be those people that 
have been stewarding the land responsibly and know this plant or is it going to be somebody else that ends up destroying another part of the world to yeah, meet the demand sometimes like, it's a little bit of both you know, it is a little bit of both I a guess, lot of it of both yeah a lot of it of both depending but yeah i feel definitely getting acquainted with the plants is just the first step because like even just knowing like yeah this plant is full of energy you know and mm. this plant provides so much abundance and just being connected to that i think can really shift the attitude it could shift the way that you shop yeah um which is key because you know we both want our dollar yeah you know yeah so various fruits um i've dived into stone fruits like uh, plums and pears i would love to dive into apples you know those are interesting <laughs> where did you so where did you uh find the pears east uh eastern europe eastern yeah in which country armenia uh, georgia mm. ukraine Yeah, for sure. Like, a lot of a lot of people make vodka with these things. Like, oh, you know. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah, that definitely yeah. checks out. Vodka, what else? Um, they just like eat it. I'm sure they make different like, they're small, types of vinegar. You know, they're very small vinegars. Yeah. yeah, they're very small. So they make compote, which is like oh, yeah. it's like a drink where they put these. The, it's a sweet drink when they put the pears and you know the fruits whole inside the, the drink. That's a big thing that they do. Um, apricots, mm-hmm. you know, Armenian apricots, probably the best apricots in the world. Um, that's their origin is in Armenia. Um, wow. Yeah. One of the one of the foods that I think they were cultivating apricots for like three thousand years or something along those lines. Wow. I want to see a lot of apricots. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen any. I've seen most at this point. They're pretty much all cultivated. So various various varieties. you were talking about figs figs yeah where have you seen figs i mean figs is ficus there it's probably one of the the largest genus of fruits um, you can find figs everywhere not all figs are you know like the figs that we know like you know the, the figs that we get in the market like the, the black turkey figs or whatever they're called <laughs> <laughs> black turkey <laughs> i was gonna say yeah, yeah there's turkish there's yeah. a black mission mm-hmm. but then you have like other figs you have figs that are uh, coliformis which they grow on the, the, the trunk of the trees you know mm-hmm. what yeah yeah you've seen that yeah yeah there's i mean there's so many like different... warts like tree warts yeah there's so many i've seen figs in desert figs out in uh baja california oh yeah so there's i mean fig diversity is out of this world um but not all figs are edible. Mm-hmm. And what have people, what have people said about the figs? Mm, I don't know. I haven't dived too much into figs. I'm not. I don't really like figs, to be honest. I love figs. <laughs> they're they're good raw. I, I I don't like dry figs. So you don't. No. Maybe you didn't have a good one. Yeah. There's really an art to drying, like persimmon. Oh yeah. That's another one. Dry persimmon. I've seen in in Armenia. I've seen. People hanging dry and drying persimmons. It's mm-hmm. a big persimmon culture. And in Japan too, I know there's a big persimmon culture. That, uh, diasporus, you know, and their persimmons. That's one of those other fruits that are kind of like everywhere. You know, yeah. you can you can go all over the world and find various like persimmons. You know, just like you're saying environmentally. Wild ones, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's bush ones, there's shrubbed persimmons, there's tree persimmons, there's persimmons in South America, there's persimmons in Africa, there's persimmons in North America. You know, Diaspora's Virginiana. You know, it grows out in, here in the East Coast, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Diaspora's Texana, you know, that persimmon that grows out in Texas, you know. What? Yeah, yeah. You have, uh, there's just crazy. You have them grown in Asia, you know, Japanese pers- uh, persimmons. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of those the fruits hachia. that you can find everywhere. Puyu and the hachia. Yeah. Those, those names both sound Japanese to me. That's a, that's another fruit I would like to dive into, but you know, I'm kind of focused on bananas right now. So until I until I get that project out there, I, I won't move on because I overwhelm I myself. I won't move on. <laughs> overwhelm myself. No, that's true. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of work to be. I I understand yeah. why you said that earlier. Like, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. 
lot of it's forgotten most of it's been focused on bananas mm-hmm. so how do you connect with people like when you travel i guess you kind of just like you kind of just show up and start talking pretty to much people. pretty much i'm very intuitive you know i'm kind of just on the ground like i land in a place you know i go to the markets I go to the libraries i go to their stores you know and people are just kind of int- first of all you're, you're in your country you, most places i stand out you know i have you know, dreadlocks and you know I just so that I, I stand out you know I'm a good conversationist you know so people are like oh, what are you looking for I have books on me with pictures in it they're like oh I know what that is I'm like or if they have something to market they're like oh wow this is this is really tasty I was like where are you growing this oh this grows in my grandmother's land and they're like oh let me show you and then I guess you know I'm hopping in the car with somebody and they drive me to the grandma's land and then you know I'm a, next you know their, their grandma's inviting me in for a cup of tea and then they're feeding me and then they're like oh we want to this person's like oh let me take you into the jungle come back tomorrow and then we go on adventures I mean it's just like it just it just it's it just, just happens natural. you know you yeah. attract these things you know yeah you attract what you're looking for mm-hmm. you know that um yeah that has to be reason behind your success as a wellness you know yeah being able to have those experiences and just like just more organically connect with the people yeah and the work kind of uncovers itself 100 percent. it seems like a i have a lot of fun your intention yeah you know yeah. it's not all work there's a lot of play that's good and with play you, you find work markets when I have the opportunity to travel like that's just what I want to tap into I want to go to a market I want to see what people are growing what people are yes, eating that's the that's the place you go to to just get a like a survey of the area what's in the area you know yeah especially markets where people are coming from their homes their own homesteads you know so you're like not everyone's selling the same thing some people are selling weird insects some people Ooh. are selling you know weird fruits some people have fruits that other people don't have, and you know, so you can you can kind of go to a market to kind of get a, a, a understanding of what's happening around you, you know. And it's also a place of commune. It's a place of, you know, people go there to argue, people go there to eat, people go there to, to laugh, people go there, you know, to hang. Kids are running around, so the market's like a good place to get a basic understanding of the community that you're entering. So markets are one of the first places that I visit when I go to a place. What's the most memorable market experience you've had? Armenian markets are crazy. You know, I like Armenia. You know, uh, it's, it's one of the best places I've been. Um, Armenia, Caribbean markets are fun. You know, African markets are fun. Um, South America, like the Amazonian market was crazy. I cannot even imagine. Borneo. I mean, there was one market in Borneo uh, that I went to, and it had some of the most exotic animals being eaten. Wow. Yeah, like snakes that you would see in the zoo. <laughs> you know, uh, weird bush animals, you know, animals that you've never seen, you know, being cooked. So, yeah, markets are, you know, a good, good place. <laughs> To get an understanding of what's happening. What was the uh, Amazon market like? It was big and messy and loud and chaotic. You know, <laughs> easy to get lost in. Ooh. Yeah. Like that big. Yeah, in Iquitos. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Got into some altercations. You know, you always gotta watch out when the traveling. You always gotta watch out for what's happening. What's happening around you. You learn those things growing up in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mexican markets are crazy too. You know. What did you do in Mexico? I mean, uh, Mexican markets. Just, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of what market I really enjoyed in Mexico. There's one market I enjoyed in Mexico that it had various insects and mezcals. Um, for a while, I was really uh, interested in consumption of insects so I was like looking for those type of things so Mexican markets I found a lot of weird insects edible insects yeah. like scorpions and open up your eyes to the the diversity of food explore 
markets. <laughs> you know, look at the spices, taste the spices, smell the spices. You know, try new foods. You know, step outside the outside of your comfort zone when it comes to food. Yeah. Today I did see something new when I was in the market. It was a it was a horned melon. Oh yeah, yeah. They're pretty good. Um, they're from they're from Africa. Well, they're pain in the ass when you grow them because like, oh. the vines are covered in spines. You know, oh. like these they're kind of like stinging nettles. Oh. Yeah. Kind of tastes like green jello. Ooh. <laughs> okay. They're fun to grow. I grew them. I grew them a couple years back. But yeah, so I want to touch back on just your journey of like how you got into this work because we were talking about it a little bit earlier. You don't necessarily have an academic background. No. And so for people who, you know, are still out here figuring out what life is all about get caught up in the whole academic world and be like this is this is the only way to uh well it has its place it know. has its place but it's not the only way to to do things in the world yeah you know it's not the only lens that you can have in the world so maybe talk a little bit about who and what inspired you to do to do your work in the way that you do well, I pretty much, I mean, I've been studying botany since I was like seven or eight or nine. No, no, I was a kid. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much my intro to the ethnobotanical world. Um, more so the botany world. It wasn't until I stopped eating meat when I was like around 19 years old. That's 18 years old. I stopped eating meat and I was like, you know, I want to learn more about plants that you can eat. And that's when I started to learn about foods, you know, and yeah, I think that's what inspired me was just like food. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like having to eat in a new way. Well, just, uh, just learning about health and wellness and you know, food diversity, you know, uh, trying to expand my palate because, you know, you stop eating certain things, you have to replace it with something else, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that kind of like dive me into it. And I started collecting rare seeds and gardening and I had a whole YouTube channel back in the day where I would like grow my own food and forage and, you know, try to put this information out into the world and kind of learn along with, I would, as I learned, I was trying to share and that's what brought me into like wanting to teach people about these things. Mm. So people can still find your old YouTube videos, huh? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I, I cringe when I watch them. So. I feel like it can be inspiring for people who are maybe just kind of getting into understanding the world of food. Of like, all right, what did this journey look like for somebody else? Yeah. So your your formal schooling was actually traveling exploring books yeah yeah the world is quite the classroom yeah <laughs> it's like the best of the best yeah I just have to know how to navigate it we have the internet too you know we have we have access to a lot you know so it's just how to utilize it how you utilize yourself. So we've talked about we've talked about the banana. We've talked about some of the places that you've been. We've talked about some markets. Just the journey of being and working as an ethnobotanist. You have some amazing things on the way for the people. Yeah. Very and excited to share. Um, I'm really excited. I'm excited to, to see it keep unfolding. Yeah. You know? And just like your lens with this stuff, it's going to be really nice to see. Um, do you have any remaining words for the people? Or just like, yeah, what do you what do you want to say to the people about just... food and, and sovereignty and 
like perspective from the world? Mm, I would say plant some seeds. Learn about growing your food if you can. If you have, if you live in an apartment, start to plant some herbs. If you live on, if you have a backyard, you know, plant some some vegetables. Start a garden. Um, buy some heirloom seeds and plant them. Watch them grow and taste them. And kind of dive into things that you can't normally get your hands on. Um, that's that's what I would say. I know that I have a few uh, resources on my website of different seed libraries and, and places to buy heirloom seeds specifically. Um, but there's a lot of people out there that are doing great seed saving work. Um, and feel like it's just so important to get to know like what where is your closest seed bank (laughs) and what's going like what is the sources of the seeds that are available to you yeah and if you you start one if you you don't have one start a, a club start you know sharing seed yeah sharing seed and also just even getting acquainted with the process of like saving a seed because I think a lot of people don't really realize like yeah you can eat a food (laughs) and then save the seed from it and each seed you kind of have to treat in a specific way just to make sure that it's going to be viable but Mm -hmm. yeah seed saving as a practice Mm -hmm. you're starting to see like a trend you know people are definitely have been getting in the past a couple years I've noticed like People are definitely more interested in these things. So mm-hmm. I think it's, people are starting to catch on. <laughs> they're starting to catch on, or they're, they're starting to remember. Yeah. Well, thank you, Anthony. Thank you for sharing your experience and wisdom with the people. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure. Um, yeah. Till next time, I guess. Till next time. So thank you everybody for tapping in with the Community Agriculture Project today. Um, A few announcements. We do have an ongoing fundraiser that is with the Artisan Fund. Uh, That fundraiser is going until January 28th. And you can find some information on our website of what the fundraiser is and, you know, what it means for us what that money is going towards and so tap in with that and continue to check out our website and our instagram for resources including apprenticeships different markets that you can go to csas um other educational opportunities and yeah stay curious and talk soon